You're listening to the Your Story PR podcast, Tech Her Out, a Maledra Digital production. Welcome to a special podcast to mark Women's History Month, looking at the historic challenges female founders and entrepreneurs have faced and continue to face getting investment and media coverage what we can all do to overcome these challenges and what the future holds. 2023 has been a pretty historic time for the startup ecosystem globally, to say the least. With the collapse of SVB still very much in everyday headlines, we all have to think about the risk involved and what the aftermath will be for fundraising for startups globally. How will this impact underrepresented groups like women and minorities? And how can we learn from the challenges we've recently seen. In this episode, we're gonna talk about the SVB collapse, what the challenges that it may bring include, and how potentially there are positive outcomes for female entrepreneurs and founders who can rise above the noise and showcase the exceptional work that they're doing in the startup and scale-up ecosystem in the UK and more broadly across the world. So first, let me introduce myself. My name is Courtney Glimpf and I'm the founder of Your Story PR. We are a specialist tech PR agency, and we are proud to tell the stories of visionary founders and investors who are, quite literally, changing the world. Whether it's changing the way you eat, the way you do business, or the way you learn, telling those stories is our business. On a personal level, I'm proud to be one of the small but growing number of women of color founding businesses in traditionally male and white-dominated spaces. Not only am I a female founder myself, but at Your Story PR, we are passionate about telling the stories of female founders and those who invest in them. So the topic of this podcast is personal to me, and I'm delighted to be joined today by a superstar panel who can really shed light on the issues because they've been there and done that. Scott Mackin is a partner of Denim Capital, a global private equity firm focused on the energy transition. He's also a former energy company CEO, and in his spare time, an active angel investor and a shortlisted first-time novelist. While Scott gives his all to Denim, we want to focus on what he does in his spare time, angel investing, where he's a champion of female founders, one who has repeatedly put his money where his mouth is. He is a prominent backer of the Alma Angels Initiative and their mission to level the playing field for female entrepreneurs seeking early stage startup funding. And in 2021, he was named one of the most active angel investors in the UK by Sifton for backing 11 female founded startups in 2020 alone. Roberta Luca is, to borrow a term she popularized, a true multi-potentialite, entrepreneur, investor, keynote speaker, podcaster, the list goes on. She is the BAFTA-winning co-founder of Bossa Games, who you may have seen just last year advising Lord Sugar as a guest judge and angel investor on the BBC's The Apprentice. She has been recognized as a LinkedIn top voice, Forbes top 50 women in tech, and was an Every Woman Entrepreneur of the Year finalist. Due to her success and unique style, Roberta is a much sought after speaker and advisor and has worked with a who's who of companies and organizations worldwide, including Ocado, Disney, Unilever, Forbes, and the Festival of Marketing. If you'd like to find out more about Roberta's unique approach to entrepreneurship, you can listen to her podcast, Hypercurious, or follow her on LinkedIn and check out her top rated LinkedIn creator series, Discovering Your Unfair Advantage as a Creator. It won't be news to anyone listening that despite record numbers of women starting businesses, despite the success of trailblazers like Nicole Sahin, Wolf Hurd, and Rihanna, to name just a few, in 2023, female founders still don't get as much investment or media coverage as their male counterparts, 
and it's not even close. So let's remind ourselves of what the problem looks like using recent data from the US and European markets. Earlier this month, PitchBook released their updated US BC female founders dashboard, showing that in 2022, companies founded solely by women garnered just 2.1% of the total capital invested in venture-backed startups. 18.5% of investment to companies founded by men and women, which means that just under 80% of investment went to companies founded solely by men. And it's no better in Europe. And it's not because there aren't any female entrepreneurs to back. It's quite the opposite. In the UK, according to the Alison Rose Review of Female Entrepreneurship Report, women started 150,000 new companies in 2022, double the number of 2018. All female-led businesses now make up 20% of total companies in the UK. In the US, according to the World Economic Forum, in 2021, just under half of startups were founded by women. So the first question is, why are women not getting their fair share of investment? What are the challenges holding them back? Then I wanna look at the solutions. How do we overcome these challenges? What can founders and investors do to close this gap? Then I'd like to close by looking at the future. What are the prospects for closing the gap? How will wider economic trends and events positively or negatively affect female founders? Well, thanks so much for being here today, Scott and Roberta. Really delighted to have you and really delighted to have this conversation, which I think is really incredibly important for the startup ecosystem, not only in the UK, but globally. Um, given that it's Women's History Month, it's pretty timely and poignant to talk about uh, investment into women founders and entrepreneurs and how we can address what we all know is a, a, an investment gap um, that exists and you know really delighted as I say to have you guys here to get that insight um, from both of you to talk about the challenges that exist the obstacles that previously existed and perhaps still linger um, and look to the future about you know, what can we do to address those gaps? You know, times are changing, hopefully it's 2023 and there are more female founders in the world than there have been ever before. Um, so they really deserve their fair share of, of that investment. So as I say, really excited to have you on board and, and, and to talk through this conversation. Roberta, um, you know, I wanna talk about a little bit about what you're doing right now. Um, so fill in our listeners, what are you up to? <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here in this conversation. I've been uh, doing multiple things as usual. I've been uh, an angel investor in, in a lot of companies, uh, tech companies and games companies, have been working as a venture partner with a pretty big fund in the UK and, and helping them to build their uh, thesis for starting to uh, invest in games. And the good thing is that we're leaning towards Games for Good, which is basically investing in games founders who have like a bigger mission to use games to uh, improve our environment and improve our future uh, on planet Earth. And I have been learning how to sing, which is uh, making my days really fun. Uh, and have been doing a, quite a lot of um, keynote speeches as well, which is which is something that I love doing. So, and of course, still part of Bossa, board director of Bossa, and and helping the company grow. So not busy at all. <laughs> um, Scott, I do a lot of work in the sustainability space, and you know, one thing is if we ever are going to win this fight, as I say, um, related to gender equality. Um, we need to live in a livable planet to enjoy that. We need to address the climate emergency as such. So I'm really keen to hear a bit about that uh, aspect of, of what you're doing at Denim Capital. Um, and obviously as such, talk a little bit about the global energy transition. So your insight on that, I think would be fantastic. Well, thanks. And thank you very much for having me here today as well. You will understand the backdrop, which is the last five or six years have been the hottest years on record. 
Um, and I know a lot of people know there's correlation between that and man-made CO2. What a lot of people have not focused on is that there's also correlation with massive insurable claims, weather-related. And so what's happened is we've reached a certain critical mass of carbon in the atmosphere, and uh, the weather-related incidents have, have really, really taken off. And I think that's starting to bring people's attention where it's less theoretical than it was. There was a recent uh, UN-related report that cast significant doubt on whether we're going to get to net zero on time. And a lot of startups, actually, I see both uh, in, my, in my day job where we don't invest in anything but, but proven technology infrastructure, but it's really good to keep up on it, and outside um, are dealing with the effects of, of uh, climate change. But, you know, we're not, certainly not giving up the ghost on addressing the fundamental issue. And that fundamental issue is that it's going to take a massive transformation of using fossil-fired fuels to create energy across all, all kinds of uh, energy usages uh, into electrification, and then in some cases, perhaps replacing hydrogen or other uh, uh, non-carbon producing fuels. So our focus at, at, at Denim is to take proven technologies, and they've been predominantly wind and, and solar um, batteries, some usage of gas <clears throat> that can be more or less controversial depending upon where you sit with that and during this transition economy, and then getting into the broader en energy infrastructure world. So we're fighting the fight, but we, you know, we have to acknowledge the, the recent UN uh, IPCC report that has essentially said that you know, there is the effects are on us now, and it's a little bit too late to stop some of those effects. That doesn't mean that we um, should stop uh, using fossil-fired fuels. To the contrary, it means that it's going to get worse and worse and worse, but we've already started to see, you know, the advent of, of some of that. And and so there are actually not things that Denim invests in, but other plays that I see out there, which are how do you deal with the impacts of this that are that are happening real and live today and will be happening over the next few years because the carbon and methane that's in the atmosphere today that's already going to have impacts over the next five to seven years. There's no avoiding that. So we've got to fight on both fronts, and I apologize for being repetitive, but this is an important thing. We have to um, deal with those present-day impacts, but we have to stop them from continuing by transitioning away from fossil fuel. And so we at Denim have been fortunate enough to create a number of firsts. Uh, we, at one point, built the largest solar project in the world. It was probably the largest for a week or two, I don't know exactly, uh, about an hour north of Rome. We successfully built the two largest solar plants in Australia. Uh, and we built one of the largest solar projects in, in Latin America. In Aust back in Australia, we took the first commercially driven um, hybrid project, which uh, mixed uh, get, uh, excuse me, wind and batteries, um, which, again, prolongs what you can put into the grid. Um, and, and so we've been able to play that renewables front since 2008, and that's been great. And that world changes, and it's changed quite a bit. And when, when we first started doing it, we called it alternative energy. Um, and, uh, and now it's obviously mainstream. And, it's the, and, and to be clear, if your listeners don't know, wind and solar are the lowest cost form of new um, in sources of energy that you can put on the grid. So that's changed dramatically since 2008. But uh, about three weeks ago, we made 
an investment here in the UK in EV charging infrastructure. And I'm, I'm really quite excited about that. I think it's going to be a fantastic play with a very, very commercially driven team focused on car parks, uh, commercial car parks, so they could be hotels, um, they could be uh, event spaces or, or any other type. And, and I think that, that and other energy transition-related infrastructure, as we are playing out the electrification of our energy sources, which is absolutely necessary for us to have a, any hope of getting to net zero. So I want to talk a little bit more about the challenges that female founders face. As you guys are very acutely aware um, of the data points, you know, female founders just lack the investment after, you know, even looking at the sort of record years of investment in 2020 and 2021, um, the numbers are pretty, pretty poor for 2022. And I anticipate given what's going on in the ecosystem, 2023 will be quite similar. So, you know, what are the challenges that female founders face from, from the perspective of investing from the angel perspective and also being a female founder, you guys, you know, two sides of that, of that coin, you know, I want to, want to give you the floor to talk a little bit about that. Roberta, can you, can you jump in? Yeah, I, I think so. So being on the two sides, right. So, uh, as, as founder of boss and other multiple companies, I've, I've seen from the founder's perspective, how challenging it is for you to pitch your startup to, you know, any, any invest investors. And we raised about $30 million over the, the last 12 years, uh, have investors like Atomical and Venture Partners, Makers Fund, NetEase. And, and I've seen over and over again, I think I, I was probably lucky because my co-founders are male. So like the three of us, I'm the only woman in the, in the founding team. But I, I could see how much the, uh, we helped each other to bring the right narrative of where we were going with the company every time that we we're pitching. But in hindsight, when I look back in the fir my first pitches, which were terrible, as you know, all founders have their first pitches that are, that are not very good, um, I, I can see that I, I, I haven't looked from the point of view of the investor, right? And over the years, I understood their point of view by working with them, being on boards with them, uh, and also as an investor now, that what, what, what we lack, usually as women, is, is, a, is, a, is to paint the picture of the big vision of how the world is going to look like when your company succeeds. And I think um, a lot of uh, female founders that even pitch to me as an angel investor right now, I give them this hint. I say, that's awesome that you're talking about everything you've done so far, but where are you going? You know, Don't talk to me as you're showing your CV and your achievements. Talk to me about where this company is gonna go in the future. But I think there's a, a, another aspect that we usually don't pay attention to, which is an excellent research that was done by London Business School a few years ago. And they, uh, they followed uh, a lot of pitches. I think it was uh, pitches that happened on TechCrunch, um, um, Disrupt, one of those conferences, right? And they, they saw that the, the VCs on stage were asking different questions to male founders versus female founders. And the male founders were asking, were being asked questions that they call from a psychological perspective, promotion orientation questions, which is how you're gonna acquire those customers, how the market's gonna grow with this company that you're building, right? While for females, they were asking preventive orientation questions, which is 
what have you achieved now and how can you uh, ensure that you have like a you know a, a great uh, um, high barrier to entry like a defensible company so it's more prevention uh, type of questions and and of course you are in a conversation with an investor and you want to answer the questions right so it tend to be that females started to focus on things that were not as relevant to show the potential of the business and the result of that they measured afterwards and they saw that uh, female founders uh, received l seven times less investments in total than the male founders which is like to me it's 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 crazy to think about that because you we talk about how to pitch better, how to position yourself better, how to use your masculine energy as opposed to, fe to your feminine energy, the types of businesses, which is another element as well. But we don't pay attention to the way that we communicate with each other that could be holding us back. And it's interesting that you mentioned that. I was just trying to look up uh, a data point around, I think, the way in which male founders are also projected so the questions that they're asked the media coverage that they receive actually puts them in a light whereby they are congratulated probably isn't the right word here but you know celebrated more so than anything else because they're asked more questions about the future of their business versus you know what have you done in the past because really you don't need to prove yourself at this point now we're going it's almost certain you're going to be successful Right. Yeah. Um, and I see that across, you know, some of the coverage that uh, our clients get or, you know, just generally reading. Whether you read the Financial Times or you read the Daily Mail, right? It's like it's the worldview that you, you create by reading things. And the moment that we, we, we're not, we're celebrating more achievements for, from uh, male founders, you actually are doing a disservice to the future we want to create. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Scott, please, as I say, forgive me for jumping in, but wanted to hear your thoughts on, on that as well. I think Robert is right to focus on both sides of it. When, but I would say that when I uh, mentor women on their pitches, I, what I say is, I don't want you to act like a man. Uh, but by the same token, if somebody asks you a question, don't come up with the worst possible answer and then explain why that isn't the case. And I think it's because a, a lot of women have had to be A-plus students, you know, to get where they are. And so if they had an A-minus or B-plus, they're very defensive about that. And then it shows up in a presentation back and forth. If you're asking questions, <clears throat> they will uh, explain things in a very sort of defensive way, but why, why it wasn't an A plus. And I, and I, so I, I try to get them to sort of the middle, middle of the fairway and to reframe the question, but I don't want bluster. Uh, bluster just, to be frank, it just pisses me off. You're wasting my time if you're talking qualitatively stuff. I asked one founder, a woman, uh, a few years ago, so <clears throat> what do I have to believe? And, and, and I th this, is, this is where I take from my, my day job, obviously where I spend most of my time, is. I think as investors, when we make explicit bets, we really think about what that bet is, we tend to be right more often than not. It's the implicit bets that we didn't dig out, that we didn't really think about, that can jump, jump up and haunt you. And that's why we spend so much time here at you know, Denim doing DD. I don't have that time as an angel investor, so I, uh, I, I generally am a follower. I rely on a lot of people who are smarter than me that are in a deal, and then, and then I throw myself on the cap table in a small way. So um, I asked this founder, uh, what, you know, what, what's the bet? So in other words, in order for you to achieve your business plan, what has to happen? And that's what I was looking for. What has to happen? So, and I forget what the play was, but you know, 
your go-to-market strategy has to achieve X, Y, Z. You have to achieve so many customers. You have to be able to maintain margin. I was looking for the ground up. And she goes, you have to believe we have a great team. And I was like, I've, I've never did a dating app, so I don't know, swipe right, swipe left, you know, I, just, I had enough of that. I just, that's not what, I, you know, that's too much bluster. So I think, um, I think it's, a, it's tough for women, but I, but I do think they, they have to be, you know, at first be true to thine own self. But uh, check your impulses to always be um, sort of defensive that you didn't get an A plus on something, and and th- and think about why, you know, an A minus is awesome, awesomely good on that, and why it can translate into an A plus as you execute on the field. Um, but I do think, <clears throat> you know, I think most uh, investors, and, and it's men and women, uh, don't have. Exp- you know, sort of an express sexist point of view. I don't. I don't think most do. Um, I think the obligation as an investor, as a boss, as anybody who's dealing with a variety of people, is to interrogate your own assumptions. It's easy to say I'm not sexist. It's easy to say I'm not racist. It's easy to say all those things. Very easy to say that. And oh, I've got women friends. I've got black friends. I've got you know. And oh, my golfing buddy. Well, I sort of call bullshit on that because, for example, if your answer to hiring somebody is going to hire the same recruiter who brought you the same people from the same pool every single time, then what you're doing is, is in essence, perpetuating uh, a discrimination. So if you're investing, think about why am I asking questions that are much more uh, digging into the negatives and, and you know, how are you going to protect the downside? Why am I doing that? What is that about? And am I, I've, I've heard from, from women founders uh, who are the CEO and has a, have a COO or someone, a male next to them, that all the questions are directed at the man. And, and again, it doesn't happen all the time, but it certainly happened enough that I've heard that story quite a few times. Why am I doing that? And so I, I think investors have to spend more time interrogating their own assumptions and teasing them apart and, and seeing if, even if I'm not explicitly, expressly being sexist, is the way that I'm acting implicitly sexist? And that's a challenge that, you know, if, if I had an answer for, um, I, uh, I'd be solving a lot of problems. I think it's unfortunately one of those things where people just have to chip away and chip away and chip away. It's interesting because the, the next question I was kind of going to ask and sort of digging into this is what, what are the key factors which explain the investment gap? And Scott, what I think you just talked about was a pipeline problem in, in a sense that if we keep going to the same places, the same watering holes, the same communities to find, you know, founders to invest in or to find uh, CEOs, then the problem, you know, presents itself that, you know, where there's going to be no diversity there. You're tapping into the same sort of um, – given space so I think that's that to me feels like especially when you just mentioned that it's like well of course it's it's like insanity it's not going to change right you're doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result um but I guess adding to that Roberta were there any other key factors that you think you know perhaps explain this gap that we haven't we haven't actually just addressed I think there's an element that we forget about as well which is from the perspective of the investor you want to find the best companies to invest, right? And I think to Scott's point in in terms of how sometimes we perceive ourselves as women founders to say, well, rejection, 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 everyone is rejecting me. Why are you entering the room already thinking 
of the numbers in the world, you know? The best thing you can do for yourself and for your company is to forget about all those numbers and say, I'm gonna go for a pitch and I'm gonna do the best thing I can for my company to show this investor that that's the type of company they should invest. But, you know, 99% out of 100, you're gonna have a no. That's rejection, that's it, that's the normal thing. So thinking that you're gonna have five days and you're gonna, you're gonna find the, you know, the, the, the prince, it's, uh, it, it could be a little bit naive. So there is a numbers game there. And I'm gonna say something controversial, I think, you know, to the point of, of dating apps and et cetera. We, as women, we grow up in believing that we majority, right? So I'm just stereotyping here, that you attract the man and you're not really the hunter. And, and men grow up thinking that they need to hunt to find, you know, to, to swipe left or right. I don't use Tinder, but like swipe one of the ways to get to, to, to the perfect date. And, and, and that's normal life. Rejection is part of life. So I'm not saying that we don't deal well with rejection, but I think we have like a, uh, we are brought up in a different, from a different perception of building relationships than men. And then that could be uh, portraying as well on the way that we raise funds. But thinking that, going back to the belief and the certainty that the best investors will be the ones who are gonna invest in your business and they are looking for the best companies to invest is the right mindset to have as a woman when you enter the room. It's interesting because I was typing down some of the points you made about mindset and and also the psych the psychology of a, a lot of this and I think it's a confidence issue as well which I think which is what you're kind of leading into is that you know if you go into a situation believing the negative the negative energy of that situation then you're kind of setting yourself up to fail but it feels like a cycle right you how do you get yourself out of that cycle if you're if you are seeing all the numbers it, it is to, pressing to some degree because you see these reports continuously that things aren't going well and they're not getting better. Exactly. And and I think it's uh, confidence and courage. Mm. There's also the courage to say, I have an amazing business here and I'm going to find the right investor. And if you are not investing in me, you are missing on an opportunity, right? As opposed to thinking that, okay, please, please give me money because, you know, the numbers are terrible. And the good news is that I'm, I'm an op optimistic, right? I know the numbers are terrible and we need to change that. But the good news is that a lot of bigger funds right now, they are tracking. They started to measure the amount of diversity they have in the investment. So there is a pressure on them to change their behavior and also to find the this kind of uh, unconscious bias that everyone must might have, right? Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you've said. I think it's important <clears throat> that we sort of step back and, and I know you're not saying this and I'm certainly not saying it, that there are not a ton of very confident women founders out there who present themselves exceptionally well because there are, there's a, there's a, a ton of them. They tend to be more, in my view, and, and I like it, it resonates with me from the ground up, tend to be this is why this works, this is why we're the right team, this is the experience that I have, and there's no bluster. Everything, every statement is filled with something that's quantitative behind why they are where they are. There are a tremendous amount of those uh, out there, and, and I'm you know fortunate to have met quite a few of them. I think it's, it's an interesting point because – 
having that confidence is not innate to women. I am again very generalist comment to make, but I think men are and this speaks to your point, Scott, excuse me, about needing to have an A plus and be the best in everything and prove that. And so you don't have that if you don't have that innate confidence, it it can be your own personal blocker, you know, that you need to you need to surpass. So it's uh clearly this is a multi layer topic, right? There's no one reason why this is potentially happening. But um, it's good to, again, it's good to explore this and I think be quite honest and sort of real in that conversation. Do we think there is a sector-specific bias here? I use bias, again, perhaps quite generally, but, you know, are some female founders confined to sectors perhaps that we think will be, are viewed as more feminine, healthcare, femtech, et cetera? Um, And also, I think there's a a question here around the emphasis on the the phrase female founder. I've personally met, both sides of that conversation and, and female founders were like, I don't want to be viewed as a female founder. I am a founder. Um, and, and we don't need to, we don't need to sort of bang the drum that I'm a, a woman. <clears throat> and I've also met, you know, other females who really lean into that. And, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm of the opinion of leading into it. It's a, it's a defining characteristic in, in a lot of ways in a very male dominated space. So it's kind of a two part question. Do we feel that there are sectors where, you know, women have to be confined to that space to get funding? And do we feel that women should actually lean into that, that aspect of being a female founder? Or, you know, does that, is that, a, is that actually a, an issue or a challenge for them? So Scott, if you want to pick up there. I don't think that uh, <clears throat> women are pigeonholed into certain sectors. I think uh, sometimes, well, look, I, look, I think the way, if you want the easiest possible investable startup, then go into something that solves very specific problems and enterprise SaaS where there's an exceptionally high margin and where you don't have a tremendous amount of competition that you can't differentiate yourself from. And an angel has high confidence that there will be great follow-on investing. If you want to have a difficult time uh, getting invested, go in with consumer products that are D to C, uh, that are going to be capital intensive by their nature, uh, and so you're always going to have a working capital issue. And uh, you know the few firms out there specializing in consumer products um, are the only shots that you have for follow-on funding. So you make those choices, right, about what you want to do, but you should do it with your eyes wide open. That's not to say that DDC uh, is is bad per se. It just means that, um, and, and where I spend a lot of my time uh, with <clears throat> with uh, investor uh, with founders across the board, uh, including uh, particularly my day job, is what's your plan B? Right? What is your plan B? Um, and for someone in consumer products, how far can you get with what little money? Uh, in order to get there, and are you willing to stomach instead of a three-year explosive plan, a five or seven or an eight-year plan, uh, to to get there? Um, and even the most successful consumer product companies are going to take generally that long in any event. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so I, I I think it's it's really specific to the type of business that you're bringing out. Now, there are a lot of businesses that are in between, but I can tell you that. Uh, Angels are always wondering how successful you're going to be when you go into for a VC at some point, and whether if you're not going to be successful, are you going to be able to make it anyway? 
Roberta, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I agree with, with that statement. As an angel investor, I, I, I tend to de-risk my investments by uh, looking at the potential for the for the company to, to grow, to be a high-growth company, right? So I, all my investments are in high-growth companies and usually involving a lot of tech because these are the ones who are going to increase my chances of having a good exit in the future and also where my network is so I can connect them to the, to the right VCs, right? I, I think, going back to your question about female founders, I think it's it, it's the, the eggs that you need to break to make the omelette, right? Being like bluntly horrible analogy here. But you, you have to somehow create the, the label at this point in time so that we can eventually be in a position to say, you know, it doesn't matter. For me, nowadays, it doesn't matter. But I, I feel that after so many years building companies, I, I, I don't, I'm not in the, you know, starting out to try to prove myself. So, so I, I don't, I don't really care. But I do care when I see other people and other women coming and building their businesses. And, and I, I think they need to, two things. One, they need to learn about the game. What is the game of fundraising? What is the game? What are the type of companies, as Scott was saying, that actually get high investments? And I, I'm, I, I love uh, B2C, by the way, because, you know, I have been in the games industry, which is mainly B2C. And it's like massive industries, like bigger than music and, and uh, films together. So like $300 billion industry. And <clears throat> so I, I lean towards that. But... In, in a way, for, for women, if, you, uh, if you're growing up with no exposure to games, or if you don't love games, or if you, you, know, you reject somehow, why would you start a games, games company, right? It's like there's no, there's no heart connection, there's no emotion, there's no passion. When things go badly, you won't have the motivation to wake up in the morning and, and keep going. So you have to follow, you have to have somehow this you know, intersection of things that you're super good at, things that you love. And of course, if you want to go into the VC route, the high growth route, it needs to be something that makes sense from an investment perspective. Otherwise, you, you make like a normal business and, and, and get revenue out of, out of your product and reinvest and grow your company in a, a slower manner. But, you know, these are very viable businesses as well. They're great businesses to build. So it doesn't need to be just the ones that you feel you're not you know, compatible, your, your company is not compatible with. I just wanted to touch on that. You're, you're talking about your experience, your entrepreneurship experience. You know, when it came to seeking funding and you talked about having male co-founders, so I think that obviously changes things a little bit. Do you think it was impacted at all from being a female co-founder or do you think, you know, you maybe had it slightly easier? How do you think that sort of played out when you were seeking funding for, for the games company? So to be very honest, I think it, it did help because we also the way that we set up the team, right? So my co-founders had been creating games in large games companies before. I had been working like one of the largest TV broadcasters in the world back in Brazil. I worked at Nokia and always in the marketing side. So our, our founding team was very complete in a way because they were responsible for making the games and I was responsible for making millions of people play our games. So so I think there was a strength in the founding team. And and often I see that it I talk to a lot of female founders, some a lot of them are, are, are solo founders. And they struggle with this concept of I'm gonna 
takes my time to find my co-founder. But I think that's the best thing you can do. You don't want to be a solo founder and go to a page and perhaps lack the piece of the puzzle that could help you to become much bigger. And whether you're finding a co-founder who's a woman or a man, it doesn't really matter. I think it's about thinking about how, you know, this company is going to look like in 10 years time and what are, what are the core, you know, what is the core team that you, you need from the get-go. Well, you're very fortunate that you got great co-founders because there's plenty of cases where that doesn't work out. And those divorces are probably as bad as my divorce that I had 20 years ago. <laughs> Tell me, I, I actually had I had one divorce. I, I had another company that didn't work out and it was bad. So I, I, I feel you. Yeah, it was super bad. It was actually a, a female. I had a female co-founder and a male co-founder and it didn't work out and was, oh, my God, worst moment of my life. What's actually thinking that and, and just want you to jump in here on, on this point, Scott, is a lot of this is about not, it doesn't have to be the founding team necessarily, but the team you build around you. And I think again, maybe that's going back to a confidence issue or maybe a network issue and network effects. But, you know, maybe female founders need to either think about that or, again, build that network where they find the right people to help build their team. Because I think that's a huge, obviously, huge part of, of being successful and getting that investment. Yeah, I, I think that cuts across any sex. Uh, I think <clears throat> the, the tough thing is, uh, you know, what I do is my... my uh, sort of philosophy is to go a mile wide and an inch deep and look for other smart investors I can just follow on because I don't have time to, to, you know, learn about every single field. And it's all early stage. And as an early stage founder, uh, to quote my mother, uh, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Everything, everything is, you know, how do I do this? You know, I one of my, uh, one of the founders that I've invested in, uh, amazing, amazing uh, young woman who's in the future of work. She tried to offload her, you know, marketing to businesses for what she was doing to someone and watched the line, the numbers come down because her personality is what sold all of this. And she's not lacking for confidence, nor should she be. She, <clears throat> she could rule the world one day. Um, and so that's the sort of issue like, uh, that I think for any growing business, how do you, and, it, and it's, I think it's a really interesting issue for bosses in general across anything that they're doing, is how do you manage by result? And unless you're an architect, you want to manage by result, not by exactly by how they do it. If you're an architect, I got to grant them that yes, it should be exactly how you do it. But if you are, if you're a boss, you have to manage by result, and people are going to do it a little bit differently than you. But you you have to snap the cord pretty quickly if they're not getting results, and that's really really tough when you are sitting on limited amount of cash and you have to generate a certain amount of revenue to get certain proof points to be able to get to your next fundraise. Uh, so none of this is for the faint-hearted. I think that's probably one of the key takeaways here is that, and t to your point about confidence and to your point about, Roberta, about um, just stepping into a room and believing, you know, you believing that you should be there. I think it's certainly not for the, for the faint-hearted. And uh, I, I truly admire people who go after it because it, it, it just couldn't be me. Um, but I just wanted to talk quickly, Scott, about, you know, what if you do, and perhaps you don't, what reactions do you get from other male investors regarding focusing on female founders from, from the angel perspective? Um, do you often get that it's you know seen as 
you know, business as usual? Or do you, or you get the feeling that they think it's, you know, a worthy cause? Is there a, a sense that you get when having, potentially having those conversations? I don't have a lot of those conversations explicitly. I'll get in a comment here or there. Some of those comments, I think early on, were uh, sort of attaboy. You know, it was more like, okay, you're... <clears throat> they weren't recognizing what I think a lot of the later comments have been. Um, and, and there's one other investor, if I can call him out, a guy named Mark Cohn, who uh, focuses broadly on a lot of things. But, you know, he's a guy who thinks that this is a value dislocation because you've got a, a tremendously investable class of opportunities that a lot of people are not sifting through and, and finding um, the ones that they're going to invest in. And so that, I think, is is the word that needs to get out there. I mean, I think people need to believe that. And, and he, you know, it's not just him and me. There's others as well. But I think he's, he's a really good example. And by the way, he writes a lot bigger tickets than I do. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> he's not spread so broadly. Uh, he didn't go a mile wide, but but he's he's more than an inch deep, um, and so uh, I, I know I'm causing him a lot of trouble now. And and he will, but he's got a form. Which he's got a, a thing because this, this is what he does. I mean, I do this as an adjunct on weekends, sort of. But he he uh, he's got a, a thing where people have to do three minute videos and send it to him before he'll even talk to you because um, he's running it very much like his, you know, his business. Um, but I, I think the premise that an investor should either accept or not accept is that there's a whole class of people here when you think about supply and demand as an investor versus your opportunity set where it's rejiggered in your favor. And if you're willing to uh, open, you know, the way your mind works to be thinking about that, uh, you can find a whole slew of opportunities that aren't being crammed down into at the last minute that, uh, you know, Adam Newman is just, uh, you know, he's coming back again, and you've got two days to decide or 20 seconds to decide are you're in or you're out at some ridiculously high valuation. Yeah, yeah that's a really good point. It's, I wanted to take a step back, actually, and talk about that and the Adam Newman sort of point around when, I, guess, I can't remember what he just uh, raise money for but there was a kind of an uproar around it and I it, personally I understood it it was like this man has failed you know spectacularly to some degree depending on who you talk to and yet you know he was in every single publication you could imagine talking about raising money for his next his next startup and I think we talked a little bit about this and we touched on it and Roberto I'd, I'd be keen to get your thoughts from from a founder perspective an entrepreneur perspective is you know the media coverage that these these the founders get tends to help with that hype building tends to help with actually getting investment people see you on google people see you speaking people see you sort of um again talking about the topics that are relevant to your business and you, you suddenly become a thought a thought leader um and that and not saying it doesn't happen for women but i'm just wondering how much do you think that goes hand in hand that sort of level of media coverage and getting that brand profile and building that personal brand does seem to be something that male founders are elevated to quite easily, whereas I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's no sort of empirical, necessarily empirical evidence, but there was an, an, an interesting piece in Forbes about this around, you know, media coverage perhaps translates into VC dollars. And do you, do you think that was something you saw when you, you know, as a, as a founder yourself? I, I think it is important because, uh, you know, me, media does shape uh, opinions and perception of the world, right? 
there was a, I always remember like there was a, a very old study by Unilever that they looked at adverts on TV and they figured out they're very small, like one digit percent of the total ad adverts was showing women as an intelligent human being. And basically, you know, promoting beauty stuff and hair and fashion, etc. And 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 I think that shapes, you know, the way that you see the world. It's like you attach the the female figure to things that are about beauty and, and there's a lot of other conversations about the the, the terms that you use for kids, right? Oh, you're so pretty. Oh, you look like a princess. And then the boys are like, wow, you did so well. You built this Lego in an amazing way. So all of those things really, the words have power, right? So they shape our view of the world and shape our behaviors. So so I, I do believe that there's been a lot of conversations on, on, me, on media, about media, how much the bad stories of female founders go out and get viral and the supposedly bad stories like Adam Neil, like it's not, it feels bad, it is bad, but it's actually glamorized, right? So, so I think there is a space there for us to change this narrative and it requires those media outlets to make an effort. It requires female founders to make an effort as well. It requires VCs to make an effort say, hey, I have you have you done some interviews this this month? You need to announce. You need to you know keep people knowing that your product exists, right? So I think it's a a component of of everyone needs to chip in and and change the narrative. I'm going to add that LinkedIn is a great equalizer. I see so many founders using LinkedIn uh, very very profitably. It's interesting because that's another outlet that we, I mean, we don't have time to delve into it, but the different sort of outlets people can use and leverage and be clever about how they do it and build their brand. But I was writing down some of the notes you just, you just said, and I think glamorize is such an important word and it's such an important phrase because, you know, the stories about some of the female founders um, who have like either failed or there's been some sort of scandal around, you know, around their organizations tend to be much more cut cutting, I would say, in their, in the tone and the sentiment. Whereas you're right, there at when you know, as a, as an example, Adam Newman was he's kind of lionized, right? Like even though he's done a spectacular job of of you know, ruining potentially his his, his the startup, he's still a multi-millionaire, if not approaching a billionaire, um, and he gets a second chance and a third chance, and uh, I don't necessarily know if I see that. Well, I think in, investors and voters like to suspend disbelief. Yes. Right. Um, so was we were a technology company or just another real estate play? Uh, is Tesla a high tech, uh, high margin, innovative business? Yeah, kind of to date it is. It's, they broke a lot of ground. But uh, as EVs get commoditized, as other manufacturers are getting in it, um, you already see Tesla having to reduce its margins in order to drive more value to itself. And so, <clears throat> you know, how long will that tech lore last for a Tesla as opposed to understanding that at the end of the day, it's a bricks and mortar business. And I think it's the same thing for, you know, voters who uh, get sold the bill of goods. And it's, uh, I think Churchill said something about democracy giving the people exactly what they deserve. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I think it, we've we've seen that in, in some of the recent elections that have happened around the world. Yeah, 
We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that, Scott, but that's an excellent point about getting, <laughs> getting what we deserve. Um, so, Scott, you know, obviously you're extremely busy at Denim. Um, and as you mentioned, you do some of this angel investing and your spare time. But really, how do you fit into your spare time? Um, the the a, a massive amounts of angel investing that you're doing alongside a full-time job and uh, being a prolific, is what it sounds like, musician as well. <laughs> no, I'm hardly <laughs> prolific. No, 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 no. That was years ago. Um, I hack around now occasionally. Um, so, I mean, first off, I'd say that uh, I don't – my kids are out of the house and uh, I don't golf. And those are two things that take up a lot of time of your typical PE infrastructure people. Uh, uh, you know, I'm in London. My kids are in uh, New York, Chicago, and Utah. And so I have a lot of time on my hands, uh, which I spend uh, productively doing, doing other things. And, I, you know, my wife puts up with it that I, that I do all these things. And so I do a lot of walk and talks through Regent's Park on weekends with, with founders. And, and I've built this portfolio up over years as well. That's number one. But number two, and I alluded to this before, I don't have the time to become an expert in these fields. I, I don't have to do that. So what I'm doing is using sort of a combination of the Mark Anderson view that you need over 60 investments to maximize outliers. And if I do 60 investments, they can't be big. I mean, they can't be, you know, uh, 100,000 type uh, investments. So I, I, I go, you know, sort of very broad, not that deep. And I look for somebody else. I mean, I want to talk to a founder. I want to understand the basic of the uh, the basics of the of the plan and see if I really believe that or not. But I'm not going to go call your customer. I don't have the time to call your customers. I don't have the time to do all those other sort of DD things that somebody else should have done. And I want to see who that is on your cap table, and and you know that will help me along pretty dramatically. And so I I have close relationships with another v a number of VC firms here, and so. If, if one of them is in the deal, I'm, I mean, I'm very, very happy, you know, with that. I know other angels and, um, quite well, including some some amazing women angels who, like, run Alma and run Hermesa and, and run Sea Ventures and groups like that um, and Pact, um, and the list goes on. And so uh, if they're in a deal or around a deal, I know that they've done all that DD, and I can ask little questions here and there and prove that. And that makes it, you know, easier for me to sort of take that approach and not have it overtake uh, the other things that I have to do in my life, which take a lot of time, and including weekend time, too. So we've talked a lot about the challenges and really don't want to end on a sort of pessimistic or negative note. So I'd rather, I'd rather us look at, you know, what advice, what support, what resources do female founders have? What advice would you give them uh, as they look ahead to Q2 of 2023 and into 2024, when hopefully the investment space is, is actually a bit brighter? Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Like, what what can they do as a as a viable, you know, way forward as female founders from the investment perspective? If they decide they want VC funding and they're going to build a high growth company, you know, what advice would you give them? What resources? What support um, should they be seeking? And you know, any gu any guidance is obviously very much welcome. I think the first thing you need to do if you're a female founder is to forget about the statistics. It's like statistics are there for us to have awareness, to improve, to monitor. And if you are a female founder in a high growth company, you are already part of the change. So why are you being, you know, diminishing yourself, thinking about that you might be the one that is not going to get the funding? 
So the best thing you can do is to forget about that and focus on your business and focus on the market that you, you're growing and you know what the future is going to look like when your company succeeds. And, and also in, the, in terms of communication, if you feel that in the middle of a conversation of a page, you're receiving a lot of prevention uh, orientation type of questions, turn that around. You don't need to answer those questions. You can say, this is a great question. I'm going to address that. But before, let me tell you something else about the business, right? And, and you, you lead that. You need, you need to lead the narrative in those conversations because as Scott even was saying, you know, a lot of investors would, uh, they rely on the deep knowledge that the, the founders have and they don't have the time to do all the DD about exactly how the business is going to look like. So you are in a mission to also educate your audience and your future partners because investors are going to be your future partners to know that they are going to the right business that is going to succeed together with you. So I think that's fundamental thing. And secondly, in terms of resources, yeah, Alma Angels, you have other ventures, you have uh, Backstage Capital in, in the US, you have, uh, a, a, yeah, a lot of angel investors are on LinkedIn. So we were talking about LinkedIn before, right? It's, uh, I, I get approached on LinkedIn all the time, even more than, than, than I, I wish for. Uh, and a lot of, I, I have to tell you, like I, at some point I did some statistics and majority of people who contact me are men. And I have to be very deliberate to say, I'm not going to give my time. I'm going to give my time equally to men and women. Uh, but it is possible, you know, people are, are approachable on LinkedIn and maybe you're going to send a hundred messages. Just don't send like a, a generic message, please. Read their bio, see what they have been investing and say, okay, that, that person looks like the right angel for me. Uh, build a conversation, build a relationship before you need the money, you know, find some hook in terms of how they they portray themselves on LinkedIn, the stuff that they are they all about, and and in time, once you build the relationship, they will be open to you and 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 say eventually you're gonna pitch to them, and they're gonna open their connections to you as well if they have connections with VC. So I think those two areas are fundamental. Forget about statistics and uh, be proactive on uh, approaching people. I just love the way you said just change the narrative when you're having those conversations because that's precisely what we tell uh, our clients if they have a really difficult question from a journalist. It's like actually reshape that question, rejig the conversation so that you flip it on its head and it's a positive story about what you do. And I think also the point about using LinkedIn cleverly is also so important because doing your, as, as much as, as, as you guys do DD for investment, Founders should be doing DD on who they speak to for an, an, an investment in terms of that conversation. So I love those two parts of, of your answer. So Scott, I'm not going to ask you the same question around what founders can do, but I actually want to focus more on your area of specialism, which is the investment part. Um, you know, what can what can investors do to really turn the tide on some of the statistics that we're seeing? Well, there are, you know, some VCs out there that are doing amazing work. So I, I think you know, you mentioned some, but it's worthwhile talking about um, people like Ada Ventures and Pact and January Ventures and the 98 out of New York and TVC and <clears throat> Speed Invest and, uh, and others who've uh, have established really positive track records investing 
with a diversity lens, and sometimes it's gender-specific lens, but uh, quite often it's just it's a diversity lens. And, and Cornerstone is another one I forgot to mention, and I, whoever else I forgot to mention, I feel like someone at the Emmys is going to get um, <laughs> going to get kiboshed later. Uh, but there are people out there who are doing it, so I I, I don't think uh, we should should forget about that. I, you know, I I guess what I go back to is is okay, everybody's going to do what they want to do in the end. So the question is whether you're missing something that would be better for you to do. And if you are, how open are you to rethinking uh, about the sort of assumptions that you bring in every time you're presented with an opportunity set? How open are you to looking in different places than you normally would for, uh, for investments? How open are you to looking at broadening your network? Um, and so if you want you know, to, and for me it's really important uh, once I reach an age that starts with a six, that if I don't learn something new, then I'm receding. So if I just think that you know, I, I, I've got it all and it's my hedgehog and I'm just going to keep on plowing through and plowing through, I'm going to recede. So I have to uh, expand my mind. I've got to be around younger people who've got exposure to uh, different things. I have to be with women. I've got to be with black people. I've got to be people with from, from all over the world who have experiences that are much different than mine because that is, is going to open me up to things that where I'm going to learn new things. Now, that's, my, that's what I feel for myself. That's, and it's, it's, it's selfish in the sense that I think that's, that makes me um, wiser and uh, more content, therefore, in the end. So I would say as an investor, you know, it's up to you what you want. What do you want, right? And if you, if you want to stay in your same field, get the same deal from the same people who look pretty much like you and talk pretty much like you, um, then, you know, go ahead and do that. But if, but if you feel as if you want to broaden your horizons, there are ways to do that. There are absolutely ways to do that. And I suspect, like with, as with me, that you'll be more content when you do it. So we're recording this podcast. I, I forgot. I think I mentioned um, in the intro that March 2023 is a pretty historic month for the uh, venture and startup ecosystem with the collapse of SVB. Um, in Silicon Valley, and you know everyone's had a think piece about it, and they still they still do, and they will. But recently, in the S, uh, the Wall Street Journal, excuse me, there was a a piece around um, perhaps why the collapse happened, and um, very sort of concerningly, the you know one of the one of the issues that played into the collapse of the bank was diversity, and, and perhaps there's too much wokeness, and and you know having perhaps too many women or people of color or LGBTQIA people. Um, on the board or within management was the sort of source of the of the challenges for the bank. Obviously, um, personally, I feel that's insane. Uh, but let's not let's let's talk about my opinion. But you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how widespread perhaps this point of view um, is within the the ecosystem, and and how do we how do we challenge that? Um, and then finally, I guess tied into that, are you pessimistic or optimistic about about the future? And um, just a point about why. So, Scott, if you want to delve in there, I'm a little afraid for the future, to be honest. Uh, I think you know people, and I'm apologize. I'm going to be a little uh, controversial right now, but I think 
you know, people like Donald Trump are very cunning, maybe not too bright, but very cunning, and they tap into uh, the worst fears of people. And Ron DeSantis, uh, that's exactly where the SVB thing comes from. They're tapping into those, those kinds of fears of people. And let me ask Ron DeSantis, was Lehman focused on diversity? How about all the white-led hedge funds who lost trillions of dollars in the global financial crisis because they made stupid decisions on mortgage-backed securities? Were they focused on diversity? So wait, so you got one situation with one bank who had a diverse board, and all of a sudden this is because because uh, wokeism, which by the way is empathy. Let's be anti-empathy for anybody. Let's just focus on ourselves and the fear and people worrying about treading on our ground. So I, I'm, I'm actually quite troubled by it because I see rational people, smart business people, who who allow that to happen. Are they are they to my point earlier, are they expressly racist? No. Are they expressly sexist? No. Are they expressly against civil rights? No. But they're, they are enabling things to happen, which should not ever be allowed. The first thing that ought to be, you know, we can argue about our tax rate. We can argue about should the government uh, be choosing winners and losers. We can argue about all those things. We shouldn't be arguing about whether or not all people are created equal and whether or not we should have empathy of any sorts. We shouldn't be arguing about, um, you know, any of that sort of crap that that gets gets put up. And so we are, we are arguing about it, and it's getting worse, not better. So the only thing, in my view, that is going to save us is is simple demographics, because over time, the demographics are going to catch up, and that's part of the fear factor now. That's part of what people are tapping into. And, and I'm not saying that everybody who goes down that ro road is, a, is fearful. What I'm saying is they are, they're not interrogating enough the impacts of what they're doing. Roberta, um, please, I'd love to hear your, your feedback as well. I'm an optimistic. I, I do see all the horrible things that are happening in the world. I 100% agree with uh, Scott's statement about the, you know, the situation of SVB is like completely insane. Um, statement, but I, I do I do see that people um, are waking up to be kinder to ourselves. You know, it's like I think in the world where things are becoming chaotic, I see people being just more empathetic on on you know on their day to day. People wanting to do the good things. People paying forward. Um, a lot of collaboration. I mean, in the games industry, is a little bit bi I'm a little bit biased because the games industry has ever always been very collaborative, and we don't see ourselves like as studios as competitors. We we just learn from each other all the time, and I see that in the in the tech world as well. I'm part of quite a lot of different groups um, that are founder founders led groups, and and we have like. We do retreats twice a, twice a year, and we talk about compassion. We talk about being better leaders. We're talking about how do we become B Corp uh, uh, corporations in the future? Um, how do we do the good things? And and we more recently talking about you know Chat GPT and <laughs> everything that is happening with AI and how can we par be part of that to use AI for the good as opposed to allowing. AI to go into a, a manic mode that could become, we could all become, you know, ex machina type of situation, right? So, so, so I, I'm an optimistic because of that. I think I see a lot of people around me that are doing the good things and they want to do better in life and in business. And so, 
yeah, I want to be part of that. And, and I, I hope more people uh, join the change for good. I think that's um, just on a final thought. It's interesting to have that both of those perspectives to have Scott's on, you know, which you can agree with is to, to his point, you see all those things happening in real life. But I think to your point, Roberto, I think, you know, there are people who want to be better and we have to only hope that it actually does materialize in, in that way. And uh, I just both you and Scott are, are examples of those people, um, I would say. So I think that's uplifting, to say the least. Thanks for listening and thanks to my wonderful guests for such a lively and thought-provoking discussion. If you're a founder or investor looking to tell your story, please get in touch. You can follow us on LinkedIn or visit our website at yourstorypr.com. You've been listening to the Your Story PR podcast, Tech Her Out, a Maledra Digital production.